I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Monday, August 19th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A CNN fact check of the administration's rebuttal to recessionary doom is to note that 74% of the National Association of Business Economists surveyed said there would be a recession by the end of 2021. You know what? That's not a fact to use in checking. That is a survey of an opinion of a forecast. And by the way, in U.S. history, the longest we have ever gone without a recession or a depression is eight years, 10 months. That was basically all of the 60s. Actually, that's not true. The longest we've ever gone without a recession is the period from the end of the Great Recession in 2009 until now. So if you want to add another two and a half years to it, yeah, I could see why if you survey an economist, he or she might say, absent any other information, we're probably probably due for one. Well, we're not absent any other information. We have an inverted yield curve. Strap in. We're talking inverted yield curves. Every financial observer of note said, ooh, look what happened on Wednesday. An inverted yield curve. That's not good. That portends a recession. This is when the two-year Treasury notes have a greater rate of return than the 10-year Treasury notes. It's weird. Recessions happen after. That shows up and every financial observer of note did in fact note it. Notice I didn't say every financial expert because there was one financial observer who said, no, this didn't happen. His name is Peter Navarro. He's an assistant to the president of the United States and director of trade and manufacturing policy. And his analysis of the inverted yield curve, which clearly happened on Wednesday, was to say it did not happen. Here he was on CNN. Uh, So let's clear up this uh, inverted yield curve thing. I didn't write the book on it, but I've written several books about the yield curve as a leading economic indicator. Technically, we did not have a a yield curve inversion. An inverted yield curve requires a big spread between the short and the long end. As opposed to a a smaller one. Correct. Well, all we've had is a flat yield curve. Well, it it was inverted for a little bit. That's not technically an inversion. It's a flat curve, which is a very weak signal of any possibility. And in this case... Peter Navarro, yield curve inversion denier, also asked to present an opinion on ABC. First of all, uh, we do not have a yield curve inversion right now by technical standpoints. You have to have a significant spread between short and long running rates. All we have, Martha, is a flat I, I, I know you've talked about the flat, and flat. again... It was flat. It was not inverted. Although you have to note that a little bit after it was flat, it did become inverted. There are numbers. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note was 1.623. The yield on the two-year... Treasury note, 1.634. That's higher than the 10-year. Navarro's point was that it wasn't inverted long enough to count, to be a technical inversion. But it doesn't matter. It's not like a technical inversion triggers something automatic in your spleen or the climate. No, it's just that people look at when this happens and says, whoops, a recession usually follows. Five of the six cases where there was a yield curve inversion, we had a recession. And in fact, that sixth case, well, what happened was there was a yield curve inversion in the summer of 98 for a year and a half, no recession. And then the yield curve inverted again. And quickly thereafter, we got a recession. The yield curve, I figure it was hanging out for a while in late 98, 99 going, what do I got to do? 
do over here? Turn backflips for you? Fine. And then we got our recession. Let me make an analogy. Again, this isn't science. It's just a relationship between when this thing happens, we usually have a recession. So let me make an analogy. And at this point, I am feeling sympathy for you if you're saying, please, Mike, do not say inverted yield curve again. No problem. Let's think of a better name for it, a Yixie. We'll call it a Yixie. Okay. So like I said, when you get a Yixie, you usually get a recession. Just like when you get a fever, let's say the last, over the last five years, every time you had a fever, it led to the flu. There are other reasons to get a fever, but for you, this was the case. You'd get a fever and then you'd get the flu. All right. So let's say one day you had a fever of 102 and you called the doctor, but he wasn't in. So whoever the weird guy answering his phone was said, yeah, 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 but your fever is only 102 and a real fever is 103. So you might say to yourself, okay, well, I wonder what happened every time in the past where I only had a fever of 102, not 103. What's the stats on that? What if I told you it was the same exact statistics? Every time you had a fever of 102, you'd also get the flu. Then you take your fever of 102 rather seriously, pretty much exactly as seriously as a fever of 103. And if you look at the definition of the Yixi and you take Peter Navarro's, it's not a real Yixi definition, and you only look at the times it was flat and not inverted, even though it was inverted for a time, you'd also find that every time the Yixi was a Peter Navarro, not a real Yixi inversion slash flat inversion It also led to a recession. There's no better statistics with the Peter Navarro, oh, ignore this particular Yixi. So in summary, the Trump administration sent out their, shall we say, deviant economic thinker with no existing credibility to calm the markets. And his method was to tell financial professionals who understand numbers and know what they saw that the numbers they saw didn't really happen. There are, by the way, other arguments to make that we're not going to have a recession, arguments that we shouldn't be so scared of the Yixi. And Navarro did make those arguments, but as a Trump official, he also did have to deny reality just a little bit. There was no yield curve inversion, no Yixi. By the way, let me end by quoting Donald Trump on Wednesday, the day the Yixi happened, at real Donald Trump, our problem is with the Fed, raised too much and too fast, now too slow to cut, spread is way too much, as other countries say thank you to clueless Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve, Germany and many others are playing the game, crazy, inverted, yield curve, all in caps, exclamation. Even POTUS acknowledges the Yixies. Peter Navarro, there are no backsies. On the show today, I spiel about the idea of not just bad politics, but bad policy, how they often go together. But first, he represents the part of Ohio that encompasses Youngstown and Akron. But that's not good enough for Tim Ryan. Oh, no. He wants to be the first member of the House of Representatives to jump right to the presidency since, can you name him? He was also from Ohio, James Garfield. Garfield was then quickly assassinated and he died in New Jersey. Tim Ryan spent some time in the studios talking to me. What I'm saying is ambition comes at a price. Congressman Tim Ryan up next.
Tim Ryan is a member of Congress. He is also a member of the Italian-American Caucus. That alone <laughs> would get him invited on the show. He <laughs> serves with fellow what I call crypto-Italians. Listen to how Irish these Italians sound. Kevin McCarthy, Italian-American. Pat Leahy, you know him, the senator. Total Italian-American. So is Tim Ryan. Don't know if we're going to talk about it. So like I said, that alone would get him an invite to the gist. He's also running for president. We both just got back from Iowa where we decided let's let's take this – conversation to a studio so we don't have uh, butter sculptures melting in the background. <laughs> Congressman Ryan, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Let's go back to maybe the first time a lot of people saw you on the public stage. You had a challenge to Nancy Pelosi as leader. And my question for you is, in the last year, have you come to appreciate the support she's given to more moderate members or at least pushing back from, say, extremely progressive members of the caucus who are in extremely safe districts and therefore maybe aren't uh, aren't tethered to the same rules of politics as everyone else. I've always appreciated her ability to manage our caucus, her ability to find consensus within the caucus. There's no better inside player potentially in the history of the country uh-huh. than Nancy Pelosi. My concern after the 2016 election was we got beat in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. I feel like we've still struggled to connect to working class people. And we the perception of people in most of the country is that we are a coastal Ivy League party. And we've lost connection with yep. the, the workers. I felt like I needed to challenge that and try to provide some initiative to let those people know, no, we're, a lot of Democrats feel that way too, and we've got to connect to you. We know we've taken you for granted, and we know we want you a part of the coalition because look who's president now. <laughs> was this a sincere effort? You really wanted her gone? Was it a statement, a shot across the bow, a way to maybe reposition her by you know showing that we're not just going to lie down and let you be speaker without any opposition? Yeah, I, I, probably a little bit of everything. I mean, I'm an old quarterback, so I was like, I don't get in the game unless I think I, there's a chance to win it. I'm not saying I've got to have a great chance to win it, yeah. but you want a chance. And I thought there was a chance that, that we could win it. We, we were picking up votes right until the end, and no one thought we were going to get 63 votes. And I think if people thought we were going to get 63, we may have gotten a few more. But to me, it was about we've got to change the brand of the party. We've got to start talking about issues that connect to working class people. And I I think the economics in the country are ready for the Democratic Party to say, hey, we're going to build you into the new economy and let you let you prosper. I have to say, if my quarterback only got in the game with a chance for winning, I'd probably bench him. Like, you want a quarterback who plays every down. (laughs) Maybe that's more a critique of the analogy than anything else. Um, I want to get to all your bread and butter, your core issues. But, you know, one of your bread and butter issues is something like bread and butter, or at least health, nutrition, mindfulness. You wrote a book about this. I think maybe a lot of people say, oh, some rock-ribbed Republican from Ohio. These aren't his issues. So here's my question. What does Marianne Williamson get wrong about the issue of mindfulness that you get right? (laughs) Uh, Sometimes she articulates it a lot different than I, I stay grounded in the science. I talk a lot about how veterans are being healed by some of these practices like mindfulness, like yoga, like transcendental meditation, like acupuncture. 
I talk a lot about uh, food as medicine. I talk about the con- in the context of preventative measures to save healthcare dollars. So 75% of our healthcare dollars are on chronic diseases that are largely preventable. It's, it's about $3.5 trillion in direct and indirect costs a year. So focusing on those kind of things, to me, mindfulness too is about getting to the root cause. And I think that's what's been bullshit about our politics is we're talking about stuff around the edges that do not get to the heart of the matter. And when I talk about whether it's economic issues or health issues, like three quarters of our healthcare dollars are chronic diseases that are preventable. Now, have we had this conversation other than like I brought it up once in the debate in the seven minutes I had like that's not even part of the conversation. It's like single payer, hybrid single payer, private insurance, out of pocket, the insurance companies. He's like, okay, that's health insurance. Right. When are we going to talk about fucking health? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? When are we going to talk about the health of the country? Because if we don't have that conversation, half of the adult population has either diabetes or prediabetes. Alzheimer's is on the rise. Heart disease is on the rise. High blood pressure through inflammation on the rise, primarily from our diet and stress. Those are the two things that are taking us down. You're not going to have any but any money for anything else in the entire budget. Not defense, not education, not infrastructure, not anything. If half the country has diabetes, we're done. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. So let's take the conversation where it needs to go. So Joe Biden a month ago said something akin to once Democrats sweep in control, we'll be able to enact some things in terms of bipartisanship. Uh, I looked up the stats. Last year, you were 86th percentile in bipartisan sponsorship of bills. The year before that, it was 89th percentile. You have a, you work on a bipartisan basis. Now, let's also caveat that by saying you are from a district in Ohio that's you know 82% white and um, voted for Hillary Clinton, but just by a little bit. So you have incentives to be bipartisan. But what's your analysis? of how much we can achieve through bipartisanship, given that the bipartisanship when we were young and Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan in a scotch is a lot different from <laughs> Mitch McConnell era bipartisanship. Yeah. Or, or Tea Party bipartisanship. Well, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm presenting really new ideas around the manufacturing piece, for example. Like, that manufacturing is supported by 80% of the American people. Now, I do think we got to get rid of Mitch McConnell because he's going he's gonna to block anything that's Democratic, just on principle. I mean, yep. That's where he is now. He's like a boxer in the you know, 15th round in the old days. Like, he just, he's going to get out there and just start swinging. Yep. He doesn't care. So the, the idea around what my, my education plan, I'll give you an example. I'll give you two, two good examples. One, three. One's the manufacturing. Two, education. My education plan focuses on trauma-informed care, uh, a mental health counselor in every school, and social and emotional learning. Now, social and emotional learning shows when it's properly implemented, and it gets back to connection, right? How do we teach kids how to self-regulate? How do we teach mm-hmm. them how to solve, uh, resolve conflict? When we implement these programs, we get an 11 percentile point increase in test scores. Ten, which closes the achievement gap, by the way. 10% increase in good behavior, 10% decrease in antisocial behavior. That initiative is supported by both the Brookings Institution and the American Enterprise Institute. Left-leaning, right-leaning. Those are the kind of initiatives we need to push. When we talk about my initiatives for regenerative agriculture, 
moving from industrial ag, which is spraying all kinds of pesticides on our food, algae blooms in lakes. We kill 220,000 metric tons of fish in the Gulf of Mexico every single year from the runoff of our farms. We've destroyed our soil. Regenerative agriculture is a way of enriching the soil with organic matter by planting crops in the off-season. It just starts building organic matter, and it sequesters carbon. Mm -hmm. So it can be a huge shift to sequestering carbon on climate change, much better for the environment. And the farmers, these are the only farmers in the country making money right yeah. now. And they make good money. So, By the way, do you have a lot of farmers in your district? Not really in my yeah. district. So but it's just an interest of yours. But in Ohio. Yeah. Well, I, I kept learning about it. And the more I looked at it, it was like, this is a huge way to solve this problem. Right. I mean, because we have algae blooms in Lake Erie. You know, and then we're dumping money into cleaning up the algae blooms and how do we fix this and how do we, and then we're spending money. It's like, get to the root of the problem. It's a little like the mindfulness. It's totally. Like the health. Root yeah. cause, root right. cause, root cause. So, like a sickness system for the environment. It's a difference between Western medicine and Eastern medicine. Yeah. And why in our medicine needs a hybrid. Get to the root cause. It's like functional medicine. Dr. Mark Hyman's a really good friend of mine. Wrote the forward to your book, did he not? Yeah. yeah. And, and Hyman's a functional doctor, which means you've got to balance out the system. Like the problem is something that you got to solve. Don't just address the symptoms, right? Right. And now we're finding out it could be your your microbiome, which is your gut health. Yeah. And how do you, you know, how do you balance out your gut? Because now we're finding out your gut health can have issues with depression and mental health issues. And so one of my initiatives, National Institute of Nutrition. So, so you know that we funny? can- funny? I just have to interrupt because I don't think you get credit, or I don't think literally people know that this is a part of your agenda. I think they all know it's part of Marianne Williamson's agenda. And I think part of it is because you have actual policies attached. So if that's the, if the only thing you're talking about is a sickness system versus a health system, people will say, why is no one else talking about this? Yeah. But here you are. My question is though, how to break through. Like you can't both in the seven minutes allotted in a debate detail your plans for manufacturing and algae and the gut biome <laughs> and also <laughs> right? Yeah. And also give some sort of message about a generalized message where people say, Oh, Tim Ryan is talking about sickness and health. It seems so I will it tell seems you very hard. In the debates, yeah. right? First debate I had seven minutes, second debate I had ten minutes. And in each of those, the, the conversation, you, you mean you all watched it. Mm -hmm. So in the first debate, I mentioned social and emotional learning. Teacher, it lit up yeah. the, inter, the internet with the internet's series of tubes. Um, it lit it up with teachers, right? Like, I can't believe that, that, that a presidential candidate is talking about social and emotional learning. In the second debate, I talked about regenerative agriculture. Like, with the, I was still, I got to say it, right? And talk about it for 30 seconds. The regenerative agriculture community lit up. So to me, I, I believe I have the most transformational agenda. And because when you talk about regenerative agri, so I talked social emotional learning, bipartisan support, regenerative ag, you literally have regenerative farmers that don't believe climate change is caused by man, but they will sequester carbon and put it in the soil because it increases the organic matter. And their focus is we've screwed the, screwed up the soil. And so it's, it's a bipartisan thing. Yeah. It's like I'm not going to sit here. This is like art of war, right? Where's the energy? Like we could do regenerative farming. We could pass that because I will bring to Capitol Hill Republican, libertarian, regenerative farmers who don't need subsidies, 
right? They're, they're not taking subsidies. And they'll listen. I mean, I know you and John Boehner and AEI and Brookings could work it out, but I think we're living in a Heritage and Center for American Progress world. Well, what I'm, what I'm saying is I think we've got to win the Senate, yeah. which is why I think I'm the best candidate. I think if I'm at the top of the ticket, I can go to Kentucky and we will beat Mitch McConnell. We will scare the shit out of Lindsey Graham with Jamie Harrison, who's a great candidate over there. Um, we can win North Carolina. We can, we can go to Iowa and run hard. We, there's an open seat in Kansas. So my point is, like, if we move away from the Coastal Ivy League mm-hmm. nominee, mm-hmm. and the nominee is from Youngstown, Ohio, who's a blue-collar kid with all these progressive ideas, who's normal, I think we can change the brand of the party and put them on defense. So if we win the Senate, then it's about, okay, we get, say we get 52, 53 Democrats. Now you need seven Republicans. And we're talking about reducing ag subsidies— Right. So you can get your you can maybe get one of these right wing club for growth groups involved. Grassley has talked a lot. Senator Grassley from Iowa has talked a lot about getting rid of these subsidies. But you got to put the farmers on another path to profitability. And I, these, these farmers are going to make a hell of a lot more money off of me than they're making right now off of Donald Trump. Um, last question, because I'll let you go. Mm-hmm. As president, would you discontinue the minting of pennies? Wow. I, I will start a commission to study. Oh, come ma- on. What if you're going to pay him a penny? They cost, they cost more than a penny to make. Do you, do yeah. you like having pennies in no, your pocket? They may, they may have to go the way of the dodo. Okay. Yeah. 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 How much could we save? I haven't seen the numbers on this. Uh, I, I, could, I could work up a blue paper for a white paper for you. Okay. Yeah, copper yeah. paper. Copper yeah. color paper and for you. put it towards the deficit. Yeah. And the people, you know, uh, valorize Lincoln. He's on the five. He's cool. Oh, yeah, he's yeah, good. No yeah. one's going to forget him. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I know about him. Tim Ryan represents Ohio's 13th district. He is a candidate for president of the United States. How close are you to qualifying for the next debate? Uh, I need some help on the low-dollar donations. Yeah, 100 um, pennies. So, yeah, if someone can go to timryanforamerica.com if they like what I said today and they're looking for transformation and get kind of getting out of the left-right divide in the new and better Go to Tim Ryan for America. Send me 10 bucks. Thank you. Thank you, Representative Or Ryan. my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> I will not give that up. <laughs> Thank you. Not knowingly. <laughs> Thank you. Now, the spiel. That was a good conversation with Representative Ryan. So the reaction around him, a reaction you may have felt, is, come on, what are you doing running? And then you get this, the, the ubiquitous, oh, I can't even tell the white guys apart. Hilarious, hilarious, never gets old. But when you hear a sitting congressman with seemingly well-thought-out ideas, ideas that are maybe a little different from what you've been hearing, it, it's a little, I, th- I find it a little encouraging, right? Or maybe... It very much isn't. Maybe we should look at it like, wow, here we are living in a society where a sitting congressman with pretty good ideas and different ideas is getting totally laughed at and just called some other white guy. And why do you have the temerity to run? Maybe we should be a little depressed that this is how the candidacy of Congressman Tim Ryan is being handled. This is not an endorsement. It's just an observation. And here is another observation. At one point in our conversation, which we had to cut for time, I asked Representative Ryan about the argument that he made during the debates about why Bernie Sanders' health care plan wouldn't be great for, in fact, people like 
union workers who had good health care. So I'm going to play that part of the debates. And right out of that, you will hear my question to Representative Ryan about it. These union members are losing their jobs. Their wages have been stagnant. The world is crumbling around them. The only thing they have is possibly really good health care. And the Democratic message is going to be, we're going to go in, and the only thing you have left, we're going to take it and we're going to do better. I do not think that's a recipe for success for us. It's bad policy and it's certainly bad politics. So you said that that um, moving to his version, let us say just Medicare for all, single payer, whatever you want to call it, bad policy and bad politics. Mm -hmm. But let's remove the politics from it. Mm -hmm. Somewhere out there, there's probably a lot of union workers have those great uh, medical uh, coverage, and they love Bernie. They're like, I don't care. We should go for it. So to him, it's not bad politics. Why is it just bad policy without the politics? I don't think the government should be coming in and taking something from somebody or telling somebody that they can't have something that they want in the sense of their health care that they were able to negotiate. I mean, you can start building this alternative system mm-hmm. without doing that. Yeah. And then as people want to move over, if they have shitty health insurance, they're going to want to come into the public option. And let's, again, like, where's the 60 votes for this thing? So at the end... Even the policy criticism crashes into the politics. It's hard to get beyond the politics. It seems so apparent to him that the politics are unworkable. It seems that way to me also, especially if you look at the example of Vermont, that it makes it quite difficult to say, putting that aside, let us talk about the policy. But I do think that there is something going on here. Often partisans in pitching themselves to other partisans, so we're talking about a dynamic where a Democrat tries to debate with or even convince a Democrat, they make the political argument argument before the policy argument because, well, they think it will work, but also they perceive it to be or even intuit it to be a sort of common ground, more common ground. Tim Ryan knows he is not going to convince a Bernie Sanders supporter that the promised land of single payer is a bad place to land. He thinks that it's a much better use of his time to argue from a shared set of beliefs and assumptions and say something like, and again, this is to the union member who loves Bernie and wants single payer, that hypothetical guy who certainly exists somewhere. So Tim Ryan, someone like him, thinks it's better to say, look, you know and I know it would be great if everyone in America can have health care provided by the government, good health care like you have. But since that's not where the rest of America is, let's just try to get it step by step. It's an argument. You emphasize the politics because it seems more to be based in outreach and connection. It sways people more than arguing the core value of the policy. There are very few arguments in politics where you say, look, the politics of this are pretty easy. Whatever we want to pass is going to pass. We have huge momentum on our side. What the real battle is, is what the policy is going to be. That happens oh so rarely. What usually happens is the opposite. There's a lot going on with this, I think. I think it is much more in keeping with everything I know about human nature to ascribe to bad politics what you also see as bad policy. We couple the two. President Obama, for instance, essentially was making Tim Ryan's argument on health care. He, you know, he said, where are the 60 votes? He said, you know, maybe if we were starting from scratch and we had the Canadian system, maybe it would be better. In fact, he did say it would probably be better. 
But he also said we don't, and the disruption to get there tomorrow would be too much. The politics were so obvious to a good politician like Obama, he didn't even waste his time dithering about the policy. But I gotta note that Obama and Ryan both think that it is bad policy because it would be disruptive. Maybe they didn't emphasize that as much because it was hard to get past the fact that it's politically unfeasible. When I was in Iowa, I talked to Brady, a voter from Arizona at the state fair, and he laid out some issues that as of late have been popular among leading Democratic contenders, and he said these were all bad politics. Let's listen. For me, the... I think there should be a public option. I think Medicare for all speaks to too many people that it's a big government takeover, and I think it hurts electability, quite honestly. I think with um, a private option, even if the private option is Medicare, it still is more electable sounding. Um, and to me, a bridge too far is the um, just wiping out all student loan debt. I think that's a bridge too far. I think that you're not getting, I'll go on one more, illegal uh, health care for illegals. Um, that's coming from Arizona. That's not going to get people elected um, because there are a whole bunch of people that may not be racist but still don't want to give illegals health care. And I, you know, that's that's their opinion. So I think there's a few of those that are just a little too far for me. I happen to think Brady believes all those ideas are bad policies, which are also hurting the electability of Democratic candidates. He presents them as bad politics, as a bridge too far, in his words, because he perceives this fight. I don't think other people will go for them as an easier fight to win among Democrats than this fight. I don't think other people should go for them. It's easier to fight about the tactic. Look, is it smart of us to proudly proclaim that we favor free health care for people without legal status? Is that the wisest thing to do? Easier to fight about the tactic than to fight about the values. Look, I don't think these people should have health care. That's something a Republican would say, and a Democrat would probably, or most Democrats, would probably shut that argument down. But I do think that most of the time, when you argue that something is bad politics, you are saying, wittingly or unwittingly, that it's also bad policy. Because if something were great policy, something that you strongly favor, it would be hard to jettison it just based on your hypothetical supposition that it wouldn't be popular. I furthermore believe, based on nothing that Brady told me, just what I picked up on in uh, his intonation, some further conversations with him in general, how much he emphasized that he wanted to win, that he does think that full student debt forgiveness isn't just a bridge too far for other people. He doesn't like it much either. I think so. I bet he thinks that that's a bridge too far for himself, for Brady. I mean, maybe if he could snap his fingers and get all the debt forgiven. He would, but he doesn't want to spend a lot of political capital doing it, which is why the it's bad politics argument usually works on other people who agree with you that it's also bad policy. Personally, I believe, along with Tim Ryan and Barack Obama, that health care going right to single payer is bad politics and also probably overly disruptive bad policy. And I happen to agree with Brady on his issues. I very much feel that those are the kind of policies that would be alienating to too many voters. And that is the part that I will emphasize to you, my audience, who I perceive is more persuadable on the tactics, or at least will think more highly of me than if I were to come out here and say, look, I just don't think healthcare is a right. Work for it, you ingrates, and pay your debts. You're bad people if you don't. 
Luckily for Elizabeth Warren, who asks, what is the point of running if you don't do big things? The single payer crowd knows that I am not going to be president and neither is Brady and probably not Tim Ryan, though he has a better shot than the two of us. And that's it for today's show. PRBNMA and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They're looking to get out of the two-year T-bill and put all their liquid assets in POGs. Can't go wrong with POGs. The gist. Let us hope this whoopsie with the yixie won't make old Trumpsy poopsie in the bedsie. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening.